Lord, Lord, I just ask that you would, uh, you would be glorified in what I have to say, that you would move the hearts of each one here that's listening. Lord, I pray that it's your truths that are proclaimed and not mine. Lord, may, may you increase and I decrease as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do things a little different this morning. Um, no, more, no more PowerPoints today, no more slides. Um, as, as was mentioned, Timothy's on vacation, the main crew is gone, and so I figured why not change it up a little bit. Um, so from here to the close of the service, there will be no screens. Um, just a heads up for you as we come to the final songs after the message and um, after the Lord's Supper, you'll be singing right out of the hymnals in the pew, so be ready for that. Now, um, we did sing some songs already this morning, and um, normally when I'm preparing a message, you know, you give the message, and then you have some songs that sort of drive that point home. That's that's what we do. And uh, this morning, again, changing it up, you sung some songs that really are the message, right? Um, I want to ask you, as you were singing those songs... Um, would you rather have Jesus than silver or gold? Um, is your Lord more precious than silver and more beautiful than diamonds? We sing the songs. Do, do we live them? Do we believe them? I hope we do. Um, you know, if, do we want to be a king of a vast domain or have Jesus lead us? So, you've already sang the message this morning. And if you haven't guessed, or if you didn't read the text that I sent out, which was Ecclesiastes 5.10 through 6.12, the the subject matter this morning is is wealth. That's that's the subject matter. And it comes from Ecclesiastes. For those that haven't been here, as I have opportunity to step in for Timothy, um, I've been speaking uh, through Ecclesiastes. So this is where we're at today. This is what God has for us today, for each one of us. So, some biblical facts. If, if you were here a few years ago, we went through a book by Randy Alcorn entitled Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And he made these statements. I think they're true. If you step back and look at the scriptures, you'll probably see it too. But here's what he noticed. <clears throat> that the Bible has twice the number of verses about money than it does about faith and prayer combined. Jesus himself spoke more about money than about both heaven or hell. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of strange. But you're going to notice today, as I'm giving, speaking from Ecclesiastes, that I'm going to be quoting Jesus a lot, right? Um, so you step back and you ask, say, why? why? Why would the Bible talk about that so much? Isn't spiritual things more important? Isn't that what we need to know? Well, yeah, that's true. But from Mr. Eckhorn's book, again, here's a fundamental principle. There is a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. So this morning you will be challenged about your attitudes towards wealth, but the end game is not your attitude towards wealth. Our consideration of wealth and our attitude towards it is meant to point us to something much more valuable. So as I talk about Ecclesiastes this morning, I want you to be pondering in your mind Ephesians 3.8, 
where it speaks, Paul speaks of the unfathomable riches of Christ. The screen is up this morning not just to be different. The screen is up this morning because as I'm speaking, I want you to look past me to the cross. Survey the cross. That's, that's what I want you to do this morning and see the value, the unfathomable riches that Christ is for each one of us. Um, another opening comment is whenever I prepare a message, and I don't know if Timothy goes through this, other people, but I feel like I'm speaking to two different groups of people, um, two distinct groups, those who truly believe in Christ and those who don't. Right? Um, but what's cool is, is the gospel and really the Bible, is, it doesn't matter. I can speak to you both at the same time because that's what everybody, whether you're a believer or not, needs to hear. Um, so... Um, there's these two groups, and, and amidst these two groups, there's two philosophies of life. And that's going to be explained here in a little bit. For, for any here who simply don't believe, please see today the futility of your life apart from Christ. No matter how rich or poor you are. And, and for any who might profess faith, but your heart serves the master of wealth. Please see today the futility of life apart from Christ. And for any here today who have experienced the unfathomable riches of Christ, will you strive with me to trust him more and more and to live for him? So this idea of two philosophies, as uh, as God does, he just keeps sort of smacking me in the face with it. And so I thought I'd go over how he's been doing that been brought to my attention in various ways just in the last few months as I'm thinking about this message. I was listening to a message by R.C. Sproul, and he spoke of two philosophies, life believing in the one true God and life not believing in the one true God. Um, Timothy, um, if you were here for his Psalm 14 message, he, he, and, and other recent messages that he said, he's, he's talked about two philosophies. In, in that Psalm 14 message, he said atheists. And we all go, well, atheists, those are people who don't believe in God. And Timothy clarified, really, atheists are everybody who doesn't believe in Christ, right? It, it, it doesn't matter if you have a profession of faith in a, in a false religion. It doesn't matter if you say there is no God. It um, doesn't matter if you are a professing believer in Christ, but your, your heart is not changed. You still fall in the category of atheist or Christian, two philosophies, Jesus said, I am the way, no one comes to the Father but through me. There's either the way of Christ or there's the way of the world. That's it. There's no in-betweens. Even if you were here for VBS, uh, for those that participated, um, they spoke of two kingdoms. Some of the young folks here might remember. Two kingdoms. It's, it's really simple. It's really simple stuff. Not complicated I think that's why the Bible uses the word fool. What's a fool? Well, it's a person who lacks judgment or sense. You you see something that's just obvious, and you don't get it. You don't get it. And then from Solomon, I started in the book of Proverbs when I first started speaking uh, on this sort of series, I'll call it. And even in the book of Proverbs, there were two philosophies, only two. And if you remember the big overview of the book of Proverbs, it was a father speaking to his son. And he was asking him this fundamental question. Who are you going to marry? 
Are you going to marry woman wisdom? Or are you going to have an adulterous wife, marry the adulterous wife? Marrying woman folly or the adulterous woman is not believing in the one true God. Marrying woman wisdom is believing in the one true God. And then we come to Ecclesiastes. We have the same idea, two philosophies. There's a chasing after the wind philosophy. That's vanity, a meaningless life without God. Or we have the fearing God and keeping his commandments philosophy. Purposeful and joyful life with God, a life of faith that goes beyond our earthly existence. In Ecclesiastes, there's this phrase that gets repeated over and over again. It's called under the sun. You may remember me talking about it. Under the sun, right? On the earth. Whenever Solomon's using that phrase, it means just on the earth. But, but a true faith goes beyond that. And the lack of faith, you're stuck with this. That's it. All right. So two philosophies, and th- that idea will continue today, but before I get to the message, and I'm sorry, but I, I, since I speak so infrequently, I feel a need to review. Um, so I'm going to go back and very quickly go through the, the, the messages or the highlights of the messages from chapter 1. It started out, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All of life is a circle. And apart from God, we are all going nowhere. And that's what Solomon had to say. Um, not a very happy thing. At the end of the day, the summary of it was nothing matters. That's the world's philosophy at the end of the day. Nothing matters. It's a vain and meaningless life under the sun, one with no hope. Solomon is showing the world's philosophy in order to point us to the one valid alternative, the way, right? And the New Testament church, they called them, they were the people of the way. Jesus said, I am the way. There's only one way. Solomon was not being fatalistic. He wasn't being like, this is, this is just awful here. We need to give up. He is being honest. And he's calling us to be honest with ourselves. Chapter 2. Solomon then demonstrates via his personal life that even though he or you can have everything the world has to offer, pleasure, riches, worldly wisdom, fame, that ultimately, and I'm going to use that word ultimately a lot today, if you saw the title, it's Mammon or God and Ultimate Questions. Right? So you're going to hear that word a lot this morning. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. Ultimately, there is nothing to be gained here on earth. That's by Solomon's own personal experience. And he gives the reason why. He doesn't just make the statement, he gives the reason why. Because the wise, and in that case we're talking about worldly wise. We're not talking about the wisdom of God here. We're talking about people who are wise in the world. They get on with it, man. They get the money, they get the, they get the fame, they get all the stuff. But what does he say? The wise dies just like the fool. Leading to Solomon's ultimate question, the question, the question that everyone needs to answer. And this was the verse that actually got me going on the whole, whole two books of uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. He says in chapter 2, Apart from God, who can eat or who can have joy? Apart from God, who can eat or who can have joy? For any unbeliever here this morning, if you would stop and see the insanity of a faithless life, stop and consider eternity, stop trying to fulfill your every desire for gain, Um, 
and ponder what I call the trajectory of your life, the trajectory of all our lives. Apart from God, that trajectory is, is not a good one. For believers here this morning, because I'm speaking to two groups, rejoice in your salvation, no matter your present under the sun situation. I know this can be easy to say sometimes when you're in the midst of it. I get it. Uh, but fundamentally, this is a truth that we as believers need to know and need to live by. Christians should be and are the only ones who can be always joyful. That's it. Right? What did, I preached a message many years ago from, I think it was Corinthians, where, where Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's Christians. We can always rejoice. Now we come to chapter 3. With this ultimate question before us, we can't answer it rightly unless we know who God is and who man is. And that's what he does in chapter 3. He makes us understand who God is. And very simply, who is this God that we are to put our faith in? He is the God who is sovereign. He is sovereign over everything, past, present, and future. He exists in eternity and he's not bound by time like us. This is a concept that we cannot understand. Doesn't matter. You can think about it all you want. You're not going to figure it out. But it's a concept that we would do well to accept. That's the God that we are to put our faith in. He is powerful. He is infinitely powerful. If you remember from the message, I had nuclear explosions on the screen or something like that, right? God is more than that. And by his power, it says, in Ecclesiastes, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That's, that's who God is. And then who is man? Well, he answered that for us too. He says in chapter 3, we are beasts who will die just like the animals. Everyone's trajectory. But man is different than the beasts. In that, and here's what it says in chapter 3, he has put eternity into our hearts. We have the capacity to ask ourselves, what's it all about? And sadly, often the answer is, it's about me. Examine your life and ask yourself, what's it all about? That's an ultimate question. Then we come to chapters 4 and 5. And because we are like the beasts, we are driven by instinct. We are driven by desire. And our desire, ultimately, as chapter 4 and part of chapter 5 talked, it's for comfort. Ultimately, that's what we want. We want to be comfortable. That's one way to describe it anyways. We all strive for it by nature. However, there is only one clear choice for true comfort, and there is a clear warning not to independently seek our own comfort, which always leaves us miserable. Rather, we are to approach God on his terms and find comfort the only way possible, through knowledge and relationship with him. Okay, now we're ready for today's message. Chapter 5, in chapter 5, Solomon now will dig a little deeper into the subject of wealth as a means of comfort, a way of filling the eternal void in our hearts. Wealth is a stumbling block for many, it constrains many to practical atheism. Solomon continues exposing these two philosophies, agreeing with Jesus that man cannot live on, um, sorry, man cannot serve uh, God 
and mammon, right? Can't do it. What, what does God have to say about the desire for wealth through Solomon, the richest man ever, by the way? Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. In 1 Timothy 6.9, it agrees when it says, but those who desire, not necessarily those who are, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Uh, From Derek Kidner, one of the commentators that I like to read uh, on Ecclesiastes, he said, man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. So, think about what your attitude towards wealth should be. And the measure of your attitude can be found by asking some questions. And I'm going to ask you some of those questions in a minute. But underlying this, this idea of our attitude toward wealth, one of the fundamental things we have to be is we have to be good stewards of what God has given us, whether he's given us little or whether he's given us much. This, this is assumed, right? That we, as Christians, we're good stewards of what God has given. Uh, Ephesians 4, I think it's 29, says, Labor doing honest work with, with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That was a message to the thief who became a believer, and, and, and he was basically saying, go work, go be a good steward, be ready to share. So one of the first questions that you can ask yourself about your attitude towards money is, am I generous? Am I generous? 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says this, as for the rich in this present age, and when we get to the end of this or maybe in the middle of it, uh, you're all going to figure it out that you, you are all the rich. We, we are all the rich in this present age. Uh, but as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the first question is, am I generous? You can only answer that for yourself. Second question is, do I faithfully give to God in tithes and offerings? Right? Do we give to God's work? Um, do, do I recognize that God's giving to me you know, it, what we, there's a song, you know, I give thee nothing but thine own, right? The, what he gives to us is ultimately his, and we are to give back to him in tithes and offerings. Malachi 3, 8 and 9 says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. Don't rob God in tithes and offerings. If you are, you know, we all play the game. I've done it. I'm, I'll admit it. Well, how much, how much do I have to give? You know, what, what percentage of this, and how can I make this work out? Um, give to God joyfully and faithfully in tithes and offerings. Third question, do I joyfully, wisely, and sacrificially give to those in need, especially those God has put around me? Right? I understand if, if there's the, the world out there is infinite needs. You could just give it all away right now, and you wouldn't put a dent in the needs of the world. So, so um, 
And maybe some people are called to that. Um, but, but I think here it's, it's, it's giving to those that God has put in your, your circle, your circle of influence. And the question is, do you joyfully do it? Are you, are you happy to do it? Um, do you wisely do it, right? Sometimes we can just throw money at the problem, and it's not solving the problem. You have to be wise about who you give to. So are you wise? And then are you sacrificial, right? Does it cost you something? And you could say to me, well, hey, if I give a dollar away, it's cost me a dollar. No, has it cost you something? That, that's the kind of, uh, of generosity that we're called to. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4 says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, there's joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. It cost them something. Of their own accord they did this, begging us earnestly for taking part in the relief of the saints. So that's the third question. Fourth question, and this last one, and it it came to me just this last week. When I give, do I do it for men to see? Am I looking for my reward? In Matthew 6, 4, Jesus said, but when you give to the needy, and notice he didn't say if you give, he said when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so I used to have a friend who was like, every time they gave something or did something, kind of something, they'd be like, you can't know it because I'm going to lose my reward. And, and that's not, I don't think that's the point here. What is he talking about? What's your right hand and your left hand? He's talking about what's in your heart. Why, why are you doing it? Are you doing it to get that applause? Or are you doing it to truly help someone? So, honestly ask yourself, are you characterized by these traits of humble generosity, faithful tithing, and sacrificial giving of your money and possessions? Or, by your actions and attitudes, do you love wealth? And what does this reveal about your spiritual condition? These are ultimate questions. Solomon, in a little bit, will address the idea that neither being rich or poor is the key to joy. Uh, But just to be clear, riches and wealth are not in and of themselves evil. But as scripture says in 1 Timothy 6.10, it's the love of money, the love of wealth that is the root of all kinds of evil. There were many rich believers in the the Bible. I can name a few. The rich man who provided the tomb for our Lord. The rich women who supported the ministries of Jesus and the apostles. The rich who, in Acts, sold their possessions to provide for the immediate needs of believers in Jerusalem. So it's it's not, um, not whether you're rich or poor. That's not what matters. But there are some dangers to being wealthy that we need to be aware of and look out for. What did Jesus say? It's harder for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven right, than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's what Jesus said. So there are dangers to wealth, and as Christians, we need to be on the watch, on guard. So we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, 
whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Well, first Solomon is pointing out that when you get more stuff, you just have more worries, right? And you have more people that take your stuff. That's the nature of it. And so we can be consumed then, the danger is we can be consumed by our growing mound of stuff, and then we can lose track of what is really important, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Um, an extreme example of this, you've seen folks when they win the lottery, like they think all their, all their dreams have been answered, right? They got their million or two or ten or whatever it is, and often the story goes, they get a bunch of friends, relatives come out of the woodwork, people want their money, and they end up not just right back where they started, but worse off than they started. Or perhaps you look at movie stars and athletes with all their entourages and managers and fame, and we look at them and we say, how great it would be to be like them. Ask yourself, is that true? Examine their lives. Most of them are disasters, right? From another commentator I like to read, he's, his, name, his name is Eaton. He says, riches have a knack of disappearing down the drain of increased responsibility. That's just the way it is. But you say, that's not me. No, I don't have servants or managers. I'm not wealthy. This is not my problem. Maybe you can say, I don't have to be generous because I'm not rich. Well, the problem is we have this tendency to compare ourselves to others that we see around us. But every one of us here is wealthy by the world standards. For some perspective, here's some data that may help us see how wealthy we are. It's estimated that 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. If I put that in the terms of a family of four, that's $15,000 a year. Uh, 50% of the world lives on less than $5 a day. If I put that in the perspective of a family of four, that's $8,000 a year or $2,000 a year for a person. Anybody here living on $2,000 a year? Now, I understand that the cost of living in America may not be the same as it is in other countries, so there's maybe some not exact perfect comparison to that. But the point is, most of us don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from or where we're going to lay our heads at night. That's at least probably 50% of the world. So then who are our servants and managers Well, do you eat out? Does someone wash or repair your car or clean your house or cut your hair or do your nails? Someone help you manage your money, do your landscaping? Um, And here's the big one, because maybe you say, you know what, I I don't do any of that. That's not me, right? No, but how about this one? Who entertains you? When you're truly poor, entertainment is the least thing that you're thinking about. You're thinking about food, thinking about shelter. Yeah. The fact is, in our country, even many of the so-called poor are, by comparison, wealthy. Most of the world does not have the luxuries that many of the poor in America have. Cars, cell phones, heat, air conditioning, running water. The list could go on. And I say this not to shame any one of us, but just to help us get perspective on our relative wealth. How much do we, and I'll put myself in there as I, focus our desires, our emotions, our thoughts, our energies on wealth, always wanting more? When J.D. Rockefeller, arguably one of the wealthiest men in our time, was asked this question, 
How much is enough? He responded, and you may know the answer, just a little bit more. And we would look at J.D. Rockefeller and say, man, that's a bad dude. We would condemn him for his answer because we look at him and say he's wealthy. But aren't many of us just like him? On the contrary, it says in Ecclesiastes, sweet is the sleep of the laborer. The irony is that if our basic physical needs are met, food, clothing, shelter, and we do not love money or wealth, this is the irony. We can be more content and at peace than the wealthy, the so-called wealthy. I, I can remember even in my own life, you know, right now I am more than wealthy. Uh, but when Paul and I started out in our marriage, we were not. We had a few hundred dollars, made about 1500 bucks a month, had car payment, student loans. I was at more peace with my wealth then than I am now. Then, you know, we could pay our bills. We weren't that foolish. But, but I didn't worry about it. What if the car broke? What if one of us got seriously sick and needed medical attention? We, I, we couldn't have paid for it. Maybe family probably would have helped. But that was the reality. But when I look back at that time in my life, I, I think I was much less focused on money and possessions then than I am now where I have so much more. So this is a lesson for me, too. Um, This is not to say, though, that being poor makes you more righteous than being rich, as we will soon discover. It's just a warning to us that if we live a life loving and desiring wealth, that we will not be happy even if we achieve our desires. These are the wrong desires that lead to unrest as opposed to peace and rest. He goes on in Ecclesiastes chapter chapter 5, verse 13 and 17, a grievous evil regarding wealth. And a grievous, he means deadly. There is a grievous, let me read it for you, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. So we have this problem of keeping riches to our hurt, Uh, There are extreme people, hoarders, but what of us? Do we keep our riches to our hurt? Jesus gave a warning about bigger barns in Luke chapter 12. He said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he went on to tell him the parable of the guy with the barns, right? Most of us are familiar with that. He had all his stuff. And he said, what am I going to do with my stuff? I want to build bigger barns and put my stuff in my barns. And then he said to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In Ecclesiastes, 
Here is a man who did not enjoy his riches, did not do anything worthwhile with his riches, and to add insult to injury, he lost his riches, and one was unable to provide for even his family, just one son. Jesus also taught in Matthew 6 about the fleeting nature of riches. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the reality. Everyone dies naked as we arrived. You can't take it with you. We've all heard the saying, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. We look at the pharaohs, and they tried to pack it all in their pyramids and take it with them. And what do we do? We go to the museums, and we see all their stuff. The end of result of a life fixated on wealth, whether you are rich or poor, all your days you eat in darkness, vexation, and sickness and anger. It's a wretched life. That was the life that this man had, whether he was rich or when he lost it. It says all his days, not just the days after he lost it. The right philosophy, we come to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18 through 20, and we get a relief of this sort of downer, right? Um, We read Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Now listen, you may read this and miss it. Listen, and I'll try to explain it. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So there's another ultimate question. Are you occupied with joy in your heart? Here we have some relief. Both the laborer and the wealthy, so the poor and the rich, living a faithful life. The laborer eating and drinking and enjoying his toil And the wealthy also, enjoying his wealth and possessions and his toil. Because both accept their lots as given by God. God is in the picture. God is part of their philosophy of life. Notice both the wealthy and the poor have their toil. Neither is immune from the curse in the garden. And with this thought in mind, let me read from John chapter 6. Some more words from Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You got some stuff. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then I have a point of clarification. Wish I didn't have to do these, but we have to sometimes. Just because one joyfully accepts their lot in life, which we should all do that as believers does not mean one cannot try to improve their lot in life. For example, 1 Corinthians 7.21, what did Paul say to the slave? Were you called while a bondservant? Do not worry about it, except your lot. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. 
Or Proverbs 6, 6, and 8. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. The real problem isn't the wealth, right? The point is contentment in every circumstance, even as you aspire for more. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul summed it up this way. You're probably familiar with this text, but now in this context, listen. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, but in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His philosophy is with God. Here's another evil regarding wealth from Ecclesiastes 6, 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, and it is a grievous evil. In contrast to the previous man, which we just talked about, we have a man who, who was rich, bestowed with honor, lacking nothing. He didn't lose his stuff. God gave him all that, but God did not give him the power to enjoy them. Rather, a stranger enjoys them. Notice, even for the lost, wealthy person, it's ultimately God who gives them their wealth, and it's God who also does not give them the power to enjoy their wealth. Once again, we see God to be sovereign over everything. And, and one reality is this dissatisfaction that God imposes on people like that is it's, it's meant to point that rich person to God, right? If they could be so content in all their stuff, they wouldn't have a need for God, at least in their own minds. We are only able to be satisfied in him. And just in case you have other ideas, you say, yeah, but if I had it all, if I had everything, everything I wanted, I certainly would be content. I certainly would be happy. Well, now we have another grievous evil regarding wealth, verses 3 through 6. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything yet. It finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. So again, in contrast to the previous father, the rich father of a single son, who loses his money and dies. Now we have the man who had many children. He had a hundred children, right? And he lived a really long life. The days of his years were many. And if that's true, I'm going to make the giant leap that this guy had some wealth to have that family and to have that long life. And, and in reality, what that man is, is in Solomon's day, that man is a blessed man. That is the guy. He's got it. He's got it all. So he would be, certainly be happy, and he would certainly be content, right? Nope. What does it say? His soul. His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. In fact, when he dies, as summed by Kidner, 
summarized by Kinder. He says, he departs unnoticed, unlamented, and ultimately unfulfilled. That is the practical definition of vanity. And this is every person's trajectory apart from God. Here the Bible speaks of his soul not being satisfied. He obviously had a great outward life under the sun, but his soul, that inner life, that place where we, you know, we all know there's an inner life. We talk, you know, we say we don't talk to ourselves, but we talk to ourselves, right? We do. That, that inner life where we commune with ourselves, it was dead. It was void. And it prevented him from true enjoyment. So ask yourself, do you have joy? Is your soul satisfied? That's an ultimate question. No matter how much of earth's so-called good things we can obtain in this life, if we are without God, then it says, a stillborn child is better off than he. And from Eden, he says, better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry throughout life. And I would say this, to clarify a little more, at least my understanding, to miscarry at life is to live and die apart from God. The idea here is not that miscarriage is good. We all know how tragic this is, especially as a parent who has experienced it. But this is a better than proverb. We've had those before. It's not trying to teach us anything about babies who miscarry. From the the under-the-sun perspective, the idea is that living a life apart from God, no matter how good, is worse than the brief life of a baby that miscarries. And here's the reason. He gives the reason. Right? At least the baby did not have to endure or experience the misery of a vain and toilsome life and then die just like everybody else. Speaking in extremes, he goes on to say, even if this man lived a thousand years twice over, that's more than Methuselah's life, doubled, um, he still ends up right where everyone else does who dies apart from God. Not just dead or, as some think, annihilated from existence, but he goes to the one place, the very real place, the realm of the dead, eternally experiencing separation or apartness from God, hell. It's terrifying if you stop to contemplate it. Don't be a fool. Ecclesiastes 6, 7-9, the beginning of the end of this section. Let me read it. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. First, are you hearing the preacher as he continually presents ultimate questions, always prodding us to consider the philosophy of our life? This passage's divining rod to truth is our attitude and approach to wealth. In verse 7, a man's mouth is, shown, is, is used to show just how base we are. Like the mouth, like our appetites, we are never fully satisfied. Hunger comes again and again. This is true in life, and we find momentary contentment. Yes, we do. But in the end, we are never truly content. We always want more because our soul needs more. Considering this unending dissatisfaction... 
we have two more questions from Solomon that to me are rhetorical and call for a negative response. For the rich, considering never-ending dissatisfaction, what advantage does the wise have over the fool? The wise being the rich. What's the answer? None. For the poor, considering never-ending dissatisfaction, what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Nothing. Oh, he, he may be able to get some material gain by impressing others. Perhaps he knows how to work the system to get some food for his mouth. But in the end, he has nothing. All he ever gets is consumed. Nothing lasts. And I love what Kidner says here. The world itself, this is, this is in God's infinite wisdom, is made to say to us, in the only language we will mostly listen to, this is no place for rest. This is no place for rest. But so many plug their ears, enter the rat race chasing wealth and power, never willing to consider the futility and senselessness of their life apart from God. Solomon is preaching, don't be a fool. Here, we also have another better than proverb, right? Now, this, get this. Better than wandering aimlessly and emptily to satiate our appetites is to arrive and fulfill our desires. Wealth and power. Wouldn't you agree, right? But just like the poor youth from chapter 4, if you remember that person, who went from, being, from prison to being the king, he arrived. And just like the king before him, both were forgotten, and their lives were vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing eternally meaningful. For unbelievers, though you may be momentarily satisfied in this life through wealth or its pursuit, don't be a fool. Consider the futility and the senselessness of life apart from God. For the believers, despite trials and tribulations, or even blessings and honor, consider your life with God, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 11. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Now, first we see the present and the past, right? Whatever has come to be has already been named. Now, we could just say that's just, okay, that, that he's just saying that the past and the present, that's it. There's nothing you can do about it. That's true. But, but he says they, they, they haven't been, they've already been named. And that begs the question in my mind, well, who named it, right? Who named those? Well, God did. God has ordained the past, the present, and by inference, the future. God, who is infinitely stronger than all of us, which is proven by his uh, sovereignty over everything, including time, this God is not someone to be argued with. Man cannot dispute with one stronger than he. In these words, Solomon is also reminding us of what man is apart from God. Right? Sinful man should not even speak to God. In fact, he cannot, right? Who can contend with the Almighty? Remember how Solomon described man in chapter 3. They are, the children of man are but beasts. There are so many who want to change the terms of the covenant, right? Who want to change what, what God has revealed to us in Scripture. To argue with God, 
to deny the truths of Holy Scripture, to make God in their image. They may recognize their need for a God even. They may even see the senselessness of a godless existence, but they are unwilling to accept the one true God who has revealed himself through creation, through his word, and through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and I think so many in, in our day, I think of liberal churches that have gone, gone wayward on gender issues, sexual issues, um, man-centeredness in their approach to church. Um, not good. There may, be two ultimate philosoph- there, there may be two ultimate philosophies in life, but there's only one God, and there is only one way to, to him, and that's Jesus Christ. In, and, and what he expects of us in this word. In, in 612, Solomon leaves us with two more ultimate questions, and we're coming to the end. These are questions for us to ponder as we consider the philosophy of our own lives. My request is that you sincerely consider them and that you honestly answer them. And depending on your philosophy, you will answer them one or two ways. So be ready for your own answer because I can't answer it for you. But you will answer, I guarantee, one of two ways. And so what is your answer to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20? Here's the questions. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Oh, I'm sorry, not Ecclesiastes 5, 18 and 20. I'm sorry. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20 is the key to the answer. Okay? So it's the key. Here's the question again. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Second ultimate question, final one. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths that hit us square in the eye and cause us to think and ponder these ultimate things. I pray for each one here that we've answered them rightly that we are not apart from you. But for any that are, Lord, I I would pray that they would see their need, they would uh, give up their pride, and and come to you on your terms. Lord, use use your word to change our hearts, to make us um, more like your son, Jesus. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.